0: You're listening to Middle East Analysis, a podcast series taking a close look at the Middle East North Africa region. Hello listeners and a very warm welcome to Middle East Analysis, our October podcast just sneaking in right at the end of the month there. James Abbott here in the chair, as always, and in the chair opposite, as always, I'm delighted to say I'm joined by my good friend, Dr. Harry Hagopian. Harry, how are you
1: doing? I'm fine. Uh, Thank you, James. Uh, It's always a pleasure to sit in front of you and do our Middle East analysis once monthly. And might I also add a word of congratulations on your promotion? I hear that you're basically on the ascent Well,
0: you could look at it that way. (laughs) (laughs) Which means more work for you. Always, always. I don't mind more work. And um, the good thing is, though, Middle East analysis isn't work. This is a pleasure for me. It's a pleasure for for me as well. Absolutely. We've been friends long enough
1: and we've done many, many podcasts together over the years. So Mm -hmm.
0: for us, this is as much a pleasure as it is food for thought for our listeners. Do you know, I'd, I'd meant to do a little look at our back catalogue because I know we're well into triple figures. We're also well wow. over 12 years podcasting. Wow. Would you believe? What a, what a rich repository that would be. I'd, I've always wanted to sit down with the whole body of work and just run through, particularly, you know, the so-called Arab Springs. We almost covered the whole thing. And, and we did. To this, you know, Daesh coming and going yeah. and still simmering away, of course. We, we've We've covered so much and so many leaders and so many positives but more negatives i'm afraid i'm afraid so sadly and today harry a little bit of a change to things we're going to do our our quick fire five i might call it <laughs> five topics that we'll cover in fairly short order and then we'll turn our attention to palestine northern palestine Nablus, the issue there, and just get your lowdown on that as the as the bulk of our yeah place that today. is
1: of interest to a lot of people. I mean, anybody who talks about Palestine and Israeli Palestine mm. conflict uh, these days automatically refers to what's happening in Nablus, in Jenin, and in the northern
0: West Bank. Yeah, absolutely. Operation Breaking the Wave. Yeah, interestingly called. We'll come on to that, listeners. But first of all, how about the quickfire five, Harry? And I'm going to start by asking you. I've asked you this more than once, and I'm and and the way the political situation is in Lebanon, I'm sure I'll be asking you again. But presidential elections, what's going
1: on? Well, Lebanon is uh, still in meltdown, and it's still in a phase of uncertainty, James. They're trying to find a new president to replace General Michel Aoun, whose mandate ends at the end of this month. So we've only got a few days left before he, in theory at least, leaves the presidential palace of Baabda and a new a man or woman, for that matter, steps in. So that's one thing. The other thing, also, is that for months on end now, uh, Lebanon is trying to form a new government. And the caretaker, uh, Prime Minister Najib al Mikati, has not yet managed to do that because in Lebanon, you don't have the government and an opposition. Everybody has to be together in consensus. So they're fighting with that as well. But there is some good news, although I temper it down by sort of saying, let's not get too elated by it. However, it is good news that Israel and uh, Lebanon have both signed an agreement, a memorandum, whereby they both can now extract gas from the gas fields in the waters of the Mediterranean Sea. Now, this is because Uh, oil and gas extracting companies found large uh, deposits of oil and gas across the shores of Israel and uh, Lebanon. And of course, the whole question was, uh, how could two countries that do not recognize each other and that consider each other's each other enemies, how are they going to be able to cooperate? So there was a whole process of delimiting the maritime boundaries of Lebanon and Israel in order to decide which fields, which blocks belong to to Israel, and which ones belong to Lebanon. That has happened, and the United States played a major role in facilitating uh, this agreement. It's been done, it's done, it's signed and sealed, and now the extraction starts. And of course, Lebanon could have been able perhaps to get a slightly better agreement if it had a robust government and a robust political system, it doesn't. Its economy is in meltdown. So hopefully this will help the average Lebanese man or woman to feel a little bit more at ease with themselves. Israel will also be able to send some of its gas to Europe now that there is the Russian problem with Ukraine. So altogether, It's okay. And now, uh, just technically, Israel is ready to explore the Karish field, and Lebanon is ready to explore the Qana field. Of course, uh, Israel has already started because they had a head start. Lebanon, not yet, because the uh, oil companies, Total and others who are going to explore, first have to decide how much oil and gas there is before they start the extraction process. So this is not for money coming into the coffers tomorrow for Lebanon.
0: It is a much more medium term strategy. Now, that's technically two of the quick fire five because the extraction of gas from the sea I had as, as a sort of 1B well, let's say it's a part of the same thing in a sense Let's put it all under the label of Lebanon Let's do that very quickly we've got millions of refugees in Lebanon we've got a so-called exodus of young people Beirut blast we've talked about and the ongoing ramifications of that negative, negative, negative is this a, a chink of light at the end of the tunnel albeit not for tomorrow?
1: Yes it is a chink of light uh, albeit not for tomorrow it could have perhaps been better but it was quite impressive that they managed to reach this agreement and that Lebanon and Israel will both get what they want out of it. And of course, Israel is going into a period of elections. So the caretaker prime minister, Yair Lapid, before they go into elections on the 1st of November, uh, wanted to show to the electorate how good he is a leader so that he blocks the way for Benjamin Netanyahu of the opposition to come and retake this much maligned seat that they all compete over.
0: Okay, well, I was wondering which of these quickfire five I'd go on to next. And I do have Israeli parliamentary elections. So should we go on to that now? Well, uh, yeah, let's do that.
1: I've touched on it. Elections, parliamentary elections for the Israeli parliament or the Knesset takes place on the 1st of November. It's a question, will Yair Lapid, the caretaker prime minister who's supposed to be a centrist, will he manage to maintain His government, will he have enough seats in the parliament to be able to form a government or will the ever so populist Benjamin Netanyahu be able to uh, come in? And that frightens me so much because uh, Benjamin Netanyahu will be supported if he manages himself to form the government, will be supported by far right radical people in politicians such as Itamar Ben-Gvir, who actually will spell disaster for anything to do with Israel-Palestine and even for Israeli society itself, given their radicalism and their anti-Palestinian
0: stance. Now, I don't want to conflate all this and point at the rather messy world politics. Boris Johnson could have come back, didn't happen. Trump is always mooted for a potential comeback, despite what's hanging over his head. And
1: even if he doesn't come back, Trump, uh, it's mooted that one of his uh, dolphins or acolytes, I call them dolphins, uh, would actually come in. Netanyahu. Now, yes or no? Do you think he could? They've had five elections in Israel to try and find a stable government. They haven't yet succeeded. So what happens on the 1st of November is a moot question for anybody, no matter how intelligent the political pundit is or is not. Good answer.
0: That takes us to number four of five. And it, again, it's new government talk on our behalf. New government in Iraq.
1: Yeah, that's interesting as well, because finally Parliament has endorsed Uh, has given its vote of confidence to the newly formed government in Iraq, headed by Hamad Shia al-Sudani. And basically, this is also a breakthrough because it's been a year since they had their parliamentary elections last October and they hadn't managed to cobble together a government. Part of it is because of the internal competition, who gets what position, what seat, because with that seat and with that position comes a lot of power and also, dare I add, a lot of money. And the Sudrist movement, which is the most popular movement in terms of vote numbers, had objected to forming a government that is one of consensus and wanted, the way we know it in this country, uh, government versus opposition. The other uh, parties said no. Finally, they came together. They elected a a couple of weeks ago a new president. Of course, he's Kurdish because Iraqi Kurdish according to the constitution. And now we have a a Shia prime
0: minister. So hopefully things will calm down in Iraq as well. Now, this topic... The final one of our Quickfire Five, I'm quite surprised you're going there, actually, but I'll ask you nonetheless. Sports washing in Qatar. Obviously, oh, yes. <laughs> we're ahead of the World Cup. Obviously, in, in terms of the construction for those stadia for the World Cup, death of workers and other such things. I read a headline in the Metro yesterday morning, don't be gay at the World Cup. So there's the whole issue of whether people are free or not to behave as they as they would back home, let's say. I'm going to just open this book and say, where do you want to go with sports washing in Qatar?
1: Yeah, I don't even know where I want to go with this on sports washing in Qatar for the very simple reason that when I was doing my law studies, my academic years, undergrad and postgrad, I did a lot of uh, discussions on theories of relativism. And I know that some people hate the word relativism because everything is black or white. And others say, oh, yes, things are relative, so there is always a gray space in the middle between the white and the black. I find it a little bit disingenuous that some countries... The Australian football team was the latest one who came out in a very outspoken way and said basically that they disapprove of the uh, Qatari authorities in terms of the immigrant uh, workers there, the deaths that happened there in terms of LGBTQI uh, rights, all these things. And I did a YouTube a few days ago in which I basically said, listen, there are also there is also something called tradition. There is also something called culture. And we should be a little bit careful before we throw accusations right, left and center. And I would suggest that if people were so worried about anti-gay positions or what could happen at the games. Why did FIFA give the award the games to Qatar? They had other options as well. So don't keep blaming Qatar for it. And keep in mind that this is an Arab Muslim country that might do things differently uh, from the way we would do it in a very Eurocentric uh, Western lens. And this is why I think that we should measure our words. Yes, we should speak out. This is an opportunity to speak out in order to improve the situation in Qatar itself. The Emir of Qatar himself, when addressing the Shura Council, said that at the beginning, when there were objections made by some Western uh, countries Australia is the latest but also here in the UK in France in Italy they're going to wear armbands uh, supportive of uh, gay rights etc etc he said we took those protests and those criticisms positively in order to improve things but now that those criticisms are becoming too scathing and it's almost like somewhere in there there is also some political ideas floating and so therefore wary as I am of going into relativism, because I know that this is something that bristles a lot of people who say, oh, come on, you're not taking a proper position on this. You're talking like a politician. I would say, be a little bit more understanding. Give it time. Things are moving. But what took us in the West decades and more than decades to get those rights? Women voting this is not something that happened 700 years ago in the uh, in the west let's learn that these are different cultures different countries which need time in order for them to be able to open up a little bit more. And I think Qatar is doing its best, the authorities, in order to find a middle ground between what is expected of it from the West and what its own population would wish it to do. So a bit more understanding is not such a big thing to ask, particularly at this stage when Uh, we're going to a World Cup, which is supposed to be a moment of joy. And Qatar has really spent billions upon billions of rials or pounds or dollars in order to redo its own infrastructure. So let's be a little bit more understanding. And for those people who disagree with me and who
0: say relativism is not such a good thing, Harry, I apologize, but that's my position. And just quickly, though, I mean, I have to say this because I've listened to you for 12 plus years. You always champion human rights. And I I do take your point about, well, let's have some perspective and things take time and let's look at what happened in our own countries over the years. It wasn't fast coming. But there is a tension there, isn't there? I mean, obviously there is. So I, I... it must be a hard one to to sort of comment upon.
1: It is a very hard one to comment upon. And when you basically told me when we were preparing for this uh, programme, you said you're going to put sports washing there as one of the themes. And I agreed with you, although I know that whatever I say, one group or the other is going to object to it. It is a hard one. It's a hard nut to crack. But I would say that time, understanding and gradual change is what is... Uh, necessary. And a couple of things that I've I already floated. One, if we had so many objections about those rights and the way the culture of the country works, why did we agree to offer? uh, Why did FIFA agree to offer Qatar the award of hosting the World Cup? And secondly, let's not only focus on Qatar, because if these games were being held in the United Arab Emirates or any one of the other GCC countries, I'm not sure that the reality on the ground would have been starkly different from what it is today.
0: Well, you know, boxers are rocking up in Saudi Arabia for world title fights. I think, you know, it's probably a bigger issue that needs further consideration and comment. Absolutely. But we will move on now. I know our listeners like your afterthoughts, actually, Harry. They seem to go down rather well, I've got to be honest. So we're going to give proper time to those today. Thank you. But before we do that, we are going to, if you like, cover our main topic for this Middle East analysis. And that is the concerning seems to underdo it really but the situation in northern palestine you know operation breaking the wave that is going on there on the one hand you've got israeli media i've read accounts of you know janina Nablus being hotbeds of terrorism uh arab media and other western media decrying the blockade and and talks of military raids that have led to casualties three israeli soldiers killed probably should be pointed out since the middle of september Give us some analysis on this because I'd like the the lowdown on this one.
1: Yeah, it's very interesting that in your intro, James, you said that three Israelis have been killed and you didn't think of the other tens of Palestinians who've been killed in the same process as
0: well. Oh, no, absolutely. I'm just trying to say that, it, you know, much as there's a
1: disproportionate number. You said to me that we've done, we've worked together long enough for you to know where I stand and I would return the compliment by saying I know where you stand. However, the reality is that when you look at most people, when they talk of what's happening in Israel-Palestine, it's always like Israel has got all the right moves on its side, and the Palestinians are a bunch of uh, uh, heathens who don't know what they want, and they're only troublemakers. That's not true. I was coming here uh, from a meeting I had, I was telling you earlier, and I was reading something about two members of the Labour Shadow Cabinet having a meeting with the Israeli ambassador here and sort of extolling the virtues of Israel. Yes, there is a lot in Israel that I think is fantastic. It's high tech, it's democracy, which incidentally is only applies to Jews and not non-Jews, which form one quarter of the population of the country. But there is also a fact that there is an occupation that has lost that since at least 67, let's forget the 48 uh, story. Let's start in 67 with the Six-Day War. And since then, there is an occupation by Israel of Palestinian lands that has been going increasingly more sinister, more rapacious, more Unlawful, And it seems to me that at the moment, it's not only an occupation that Israel is happy to manage rather than to deal with or negotiate over, but it's an occupation that Israel is actually encouraging. Because when I look at what's happening in Jerusalem, in the uh, district of Sheikh Jarrah, with the eviction of families, with the demolition of houses, when I look at the incursions on the esplanade of the Dome of the Rock, when I go to what's happening in the northern West Bank in Geneva, first and now in Nablus. And I sort of then look at the settlers who are going into olive groves. Now it is the olive harvesting season for Palestinians. It's where people's livelihoods uh, rely on. Suddenly they're going, the settlers, and they're beating the Palestinians. They're smashing their cars. And what is the army doing? at best, nothing, at worst, protecting the settlers against the victims. It has always been so. It has always been so. Thank you. So in a sense, I would say that this is all a byproduct of an occupation that is increasingly more sinister, That, and the world seems to be, as it becomes more populist, we can see that the elections in Brazil, we can see that in some parts of the EU, etc. As the world becomes more uh, populist, it seems to me that everything is is doable these days, and we have to actually say no. Everything is not doable everywhere, and there is a very nice Hebrew term that I like a lot, yesh gvul, which means there is a limit to
0: everything. And it seems to me that Israel now is trespassing over those limits. And I just do want to ask you this, though. But I, I did want you to address that hotbeds of terrorism argument. Is is that true? Ha, has have militant factions been allowed to, to get a bit too powerful in those areas or not?
1: I'll tell you something very simple with that. And that this, this sentence, which you and I know very well and which every one of our listeners also will have heard, is very simple. One man's terrorist is another man's freedom sure, fighter. Yeah. So let us not forget that the bulk of the struggle against Israel by Palestinian factions, be those peaceful protests, Nonviolent protests or unfortunately, sometimes violent protests are happening in occupied lands and, therefore, and that's international law. Under international law, someone has the right to struggle for his or her own freedom so when people talk about recently and this has become fashionable when people talk about the arin al-usud in arabic which is the lions den members of a new movement that came out or that spawned out of an earlier movement in jenin not far from nablus which was called katibat al-jenin the battalion of jenin these people are ordinary palestinians young people who did not witness the first intifada who did not witness the second intifada who are being Basically, looking at what Israel is doing with their parents and what it is doing to the people surrounding them, their neighbors and saying this is not acceptable. And these are the people who have suddenly uh, come up and said, we're going to struggle. We're going to fight for our independence and for our deoccupation or the deoccupation of our lands, the liberation of our lands, because they feel and I think they're entitled to it, freedom uh, in their own lands. And those people, the Lions Den members, they're not, they don't belong to any faction. They're not part of Hamas or part of the Fatah or part of any organization. They are a a mishmash of different people who've come together saying enough is enough. We're not going to point our guns against Palestinians, but we're going to point our guns at the israelis at checkpoints and and those who are in the occupied territories now i as a person am not for killing no matter what kind of killing mm-hmm. but i can understand that after 50, 60 years, five, six decades of occupation, humiliation, dispossession, eviction, annexation of land, settlement, all these things that are happening with the West happily bewitched with Ukraine, happily being an irony, of course, and forgetting what's happening in that part of the world. I think these people are actually showing a remarkable amount of tenacity when they are facing... Really challenging odds by a behemoth, by a power that is so much superior to them. Some people might have heard about some of the members of this faction being killed. And it's interesting because you would know this much more than I do because you're so much more digitally minded than I am. There is this Pegasus software that Israel is getting into the mobiles of the Palestinians. So it knows exactly where these people are going. And then it's going and doing extrajudicial killings. Hold on extrajudicial
0: killings, I thought that was unlawful. What is the West doing? Nada, zilch. I think what you're saying as well on, on, in, in bigger picture terms and how often have we talked about two-state solutions and, a, and the fact that uh, it's non-contiguous and is there any future at all to that type of conversation, it does make me lament somewhat that the Israelis and the Palestinians to that extent couldn't have found, or the Israelis couldn't have found the ability to give the Palestinians their self-determinism because they would be less under pressure at that point as well, the Israelis, would they not?
1: You're right. I mean, part of the reason why this has happened is because there is no good faith, in my opinion. Israel has decided and it's decided years ago. It's nothing to do with Yair Lapid. It's decided during Ariel Sharon's time, during Benjamin Netanyahu's time, that we're not going to give back any of the land. This land is biblical land that belongs to us. We're going to manage it. And it's unfortunate that there are Palestinians, some three million Palestinians living on this land. And therefore, we'll manage it, but we'll not cede any of those territory. And they always keep bringing up the story of how they gave away Gaza and uh, Gaza now has become another, to use your terms, hotbed for terrorism. So in a sense, that good faith is lacking. But what is also lacking is that there is no process. There is no peace process. Why? Because Israel is determined to quash any peace process and therefore maintain its stranglehold on the Palestinian territories. The Palestinian authority and the Palestinian political leadership at the moment is so geriatric and so inefficient and redundant that it has lost the confidence and of unable its to people reform itself. And unable to reform itself, and it needs new blood. It needs younger blood to come into positions of authority in order to be able to galvanize the situation. And then we have got a quiescent, dormant, almost timorous West in the EU, which before used to have absolutely no political weight, but financial weight. And now the EU is so much beholden to the war between Russia and Ukraine or the Russian war on Ukraine, to correct myself, that they don't have time even to allocate that much money for Palestine. And when it comes to uh, the U.S. administration, people had so much hope that Biden might be different from Trump. Excuse me, he went to Israel and he said he was a Zionist before Ages And now he just said recently in a meeting with the Israeli ambassador in Washington, D.C., that if Israel didn't exist, we should create an Israel. That is fine. But what about all the promises he made to the Palestinians from reopening their mission office in Washington? What about the consulate in Jerusalem? What about all these things? Palestinians are being given lip service and they're told, just shut up, bear it and get on with it. Well, there comes a time where they can't get on with it anymore and the lion's den is nothing more. It's not a political movement. It's not a political manifestation. It's just a reaction, an echo to the frustration of Palestinians, men and women alike, across the whole of Palestine. From the north, Nablus, Jenin, Jerusalem, coming down to Hebron, Bethlehem, etc. All these places are saying, we've had enough of it. Is it only a spurt that will die out like many others did? Or is this where groups in each place will take things in their own hands because they no longer trust a centralized authority to be able to direct them? A bit like what happens if you want me to throw history in here, 1936 to 1939, or what happened during the first Intifada? not the second one. And now we are at this reality where we don't know where it's going to go. The elections in Israel will happen on the 1st of November. Israel will then no longer have the reason to show how muscular it is by doing what it is doing. Will it release the blockade? Will it change its
0: attitude? I very much doubt it. I will believe it when I see pigs flying. Well, we might. (laughs) <laughs> I've never seen one to date. Forgive me for being a bit picky, but I am going to point out that hotbeds of terrorism was not my phrase. It was a phrase I picked up to be somewhat devil's advocate to this, but I think you've answered that question. That is perfectly fine. You know,
1: what people don't understand, uh, James, is that when I was uh, in charge of track two negotiations during the much maligned Oslo process, when I was also doing other things like running an office for all the Christian churches of the Holy Land, et cetera. Et cetera I used to have so many friends, and this is cheesy, but it has to be said. I used to have so many friends. I used to go and do Friday evening suppers with Israeli friends. I used to talk to them as much as I used to talk uh, to Palestinians because I was independent. I wasn't part of the Palestinian delegation, nor of the Israeli delegation. This is where and I'm not going to open this subject because this is a big subject. This is where anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism are two entirely different things. For me, and those people who try to bring them together so that anything you say politically to criticize Israel becomes anti Semitic is wrong. And I would challenge that. And I wish that the world would wake up to the fact that there are rights that need to be had in order to have a quieter world. But I can't see that happening now, either from an OTO's Palestinian side or an extremely belligerent Israeli side.
0: Yeah, it doesn't fill me full of, well, as it hasn't pretty much for the whole 12 years we've been talking with a lot of grounds for optimism for for some form of peace. Anyway, so it is now time for afterthoughts, Harry. Where do you want to start with these? Because these are quite popular and they leave me a little bit on tenterhooks because I've got no idea where you're going with these. Well, it's nothing too original, I'm afraid,
1: James. So your tenterhooks are, will be disappointed uh, today. But all I wanted, <laughs> all I wanted to say is first, guess what? You have heard it, I've heard it today Elon Musk has bought ah, Twitter. Uh, has bought the acquisition, the takeover of Twitter by Elon Musk has happened. Mm. He might censor you then, and <laughs> and that worries me a little bit because I think that would give uh, uh, ex President Donald Trump a platform to get on Twitter. Again, so let's see what happens there. That's one thing I wanted to put in there. Mm -hmm. The other thing, closer to Jerusalem and closer to my own tribe, the Armenians, is that in Jerusalem we had the inauguration of the Edward and uh, Helen Mardigian Museum in the heart of the Armenian Patriarchate, the Armenian Church in Jerusalem. And it's basically a piece of mosaic, a huge, beautiful piece of mosaic that was extracted with the help of the Dominican uh, archaeologists who transported it to the uh, Patriarchate where they actually are uh, showing it to the public now, and there was an opening uh, ceremony for it with a lot of people there. And I think it shows the history of Armenians because it's an Armenian piece of mosaic. That's what's interesting about it, which shows the history of Armenians in the Holy Land. And the, the only third thing I would say is that after so much, so much, so much uncertainty in our own country, in the UK, so we can finish off with being a little bit local. We now have a new prime minister, another third prime minister, fourth uh, chancellor. (laughs) And we're doing quite well, actually. I thought this only happened in Africa. Uh, No slander on any other political system. But Rishi Sunak is now our prime minister. Will he succeed? How is he going to apply his uh, policies? Time alone will tell. But I will Uh, only say one thing to him, which is a bit of advice as if he hears my advice or he cares what I think. And that is a well-known political maxim, which says politics in victory is chased by defeat. It's a maxim. It's a truism. It's something that is very true. People start in politics with success and then they end up with defeat. He has to be careful if he really wants to make a difference for a country that is suffering incredibly. And I look at nurses, nurses who cannot afford to go and buy food, who are going into bank foods. I don't believe that churches in Leicester have all opened food banks in their churches because people have to go and get food. When you think that this is the UK, that this is the fifth or sixth world economy, and we're in this shape, and then people go babbling about some nonsense here and there. And I stop there because I'm I'm getting
0: a little bit moved by this. I will say two things, though. Not political points, but first Asian prime minister, first Hindu prime minister. I mean, notable nonetheless. And the youngest. And the youngest. Since God knows
1: where. It's brilliant that... The UK is so open that it has managed to do that. And perhaps the Labour Party could learn something from the Conservative Party. They've never had a woman leader. Which is a bit surprising, actually. Which is very surprising. Mm. So, yes, he's got a lot of things going for him. He's also a multimillionaire. So I hope he understands the the needs of those people who don't have those millions. But let's hope politics in victory, chaste in defeat. I left the pregnant
0: pause. Did you detect that? Just to let those words seep in, Harry. Thank you, James. We've been. Ever thoughtful. Do you know what? We've been rather disciplined. We've done the whole thing in about 35 minutes. Wonderful. Harry, I'll just say thank you and I'll ask you to rejoin us in November.
1: I hope so. And I look forward uh, to that. And once again, congratulations on your promotion. And thank you very much for stewarding this podcast.
0: Well, my promotion seems to allow me to still be here with you. So there are great joys involved. (laughs) Harry, thank you so much.
1: Pleasure.